open them to the epistle of 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. A little over three years ago, we began a study in the book of Ephesians that took us about two years to complete. After that, we went to the book of Philippians, and we spent about one and a half years in those four chapters, and we finished up in February of this year. And I hope that you remember who the author of those two books was. Because over and over again, you would hear me say, Paul said this, this is how Paul preached, this is how Paul acted, Paul did this and Paul did that. So we spent a whole lot of time studying in Paul's letters, and I guess we're just very, very accustomed to hearing, uh, you're hearing me talk about Paul. And when we finished Philippians, I really wasn't quite sure which book of the Bible that we would go into next. And I thought that, well, maybe we might move right on into the next book, which would be uh, Colossians. Or perhaps we would back up just a little bit and take the book of Galatians. But after praying about this and uh, really after doing some agonizing to some extent, I decided that we would leave Paul for just a little while and we would go to the epistle of 1 John and we would look at a different apostle and look at the way that he approached the doctrines of the faith. Now make no mistake about this, Paul and John are in exact agreement with one another but they deliver the message in just a little bit different way. They believe the very same things, but they say things in a different way. You know, I've always loved to study Paul because I love his keen intellect. I I love his logical approach to the scriptures. You notice how Paul develops arguments from just about every angle. And when he's arguing about something, he he just... argues in such a way that he draws a net around his opponent until he leaves him at the place where he has no other thing to do but simply to agree. So I love that logical approach and the skill at which Paul explains great doctrines of the faith. And that's because I like reasoned arguments. And I do hope that in my own preaching, some of that style shows up just a little bit. But John is a much different type of writer, uh, where Paul is very verbose and takes a long way around a topic. John is very direct. He drives to the point very quickly, a very black and white approach to things. He just says, here it is, take it or leave it. This is the way that it is. And I think it's good for us to look at the way that God used the personalities of different men who, who were used to write the, the scriptures. Um, they teach the very same doctrines, as I said, but they just look at things in a different way or they approach them in such a different way that the personality of each of the authors is brought out in their their writings. So if I were going to choose, though, one verse from this letter that sums up John's writing, I would have to choose chapter 5, verse number 13. And this is where John says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. When John writes, he's always very good at stating his purpose. John's direct method will never leave you wondering, what was that about? What was his intention? What did he want to say? He's really the only gospel writer. If you remember this, he was the only one of all the, of the, of the, gospel, of the four gospel writers who was so direct that he set down the purpose for his writing of his book. Do you remember that? He came down to the end of, of John. In the 20th chapter, he said, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written 
that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. And when he was writing the Revelation, he begins it this way. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. So John, when he writes, is always very direct and he states the purpose for what he has to say. Now, he even does that sometimes within the chapters of 1 John. For instance, in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 4, he says, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. In chapter 2, verse number 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And then, of course, the verse that we started with, uh, chapter 5, verse number 13, where he says, I write unto you that ye might know that you have eternal life. And so it's very direct, and so he just doesn't leave anybody in the dark about what he wants to say. So what I want to do tonight is to give you an introduction to this book, and then really we're going to talk about the Apostle John, mostly tonight, the person. And I think it's very important that we look into the, to the book of 1 John, because we're in an age when preachers like to dance around issues, when there are churches who try to just soften the blow of what Scripture has to say. We're in a time when, when churches play time and pretend time and show and tell time. And it's good to see an apostle who is so very direct and uncompromising about the Word of God. And when he states his purpose and says what he wants to say, he just puts it out here like this. You either like it or you lump it, because that's the way that it is. That's the Apostle John. So I'm going to introduce you to him tonight, mostly. And uh, I won't be able to finish this tonight. Next week, we're going to look a little bit more into the doctrines that will be taught in the book. But, um, and the purpose for John's writing as far as doctrinal considerations are concerned. And then we'll get into the verse-by-verse study after we've preached these two messages. But I want to begin tonight talking about, speaking about the Apostle of the Epistle. Who is John? And I want to start with the person because you really have to know him before you can understand why that he writes the way that he writes. When Paul is introduced to us in the book of Acts, we learn some things about him that help us to understand why Paul said what he said and why he acted like he acted, why he reasoned the way that he did. And we learn there in Acts that Paul was a Pharisee, that he was one who was educated by the best doctors of the law. The scripture tells us, and Paul relates this, that he grew up at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a very influential rabbi, and he was very gifted in his knowledge of the scriptures about the law, And Paul was one who was taught to know how to handle himself in an argument. And so you often see Paul in scenes where uh, he's debating the scriptures. One time you may remember that uh, the Jews brought up their best orator, one that they thought that could surely argue with the apostle Paul. And Paul listened to him and went toe-to-toe with him. And before it was all over, of course, Paul came out on top. And so Paul was from that 
elite branch of Jewish society. And, and many people even thought that he was wealthy at the first. He was a Pharisee, the darling of the Pharisees. And I suppose that that's why they hated him so much. Because they were the ones that trained him. And what Paul did was he turned around the education that they gave him and he used it on them. So every argument that Paul got into, he already knew where his opponents were going. He'd heard it all before. He knew how to reason the scriptures. But when we talk about the Apostle John, we're talking about a very different type of person. Here is a man who is not educated like Paul was. He wasn't an educated Pharisee. He'd never been to Jerusalem to uh, sit under the rabbis for instruction. He was from Galilee. And that was a place that was far off from the hub of elite Jewish activity. He was from a place that was largely looked down upon by those elitist Jews that were in Jerusalem. Because the the Galileans were generally uneducated. They were people like John who had spent too much time around mixed multitudes. And so that's the way the Jerusalem socialites always looked at Galileans. That particular region of Israel was the first that went into apostasy during the kingdom age. There was a large influence of the Assyrians there, so the Assyrian culture, so that many of the people who lived in Galilee weren't pure Jews. And so they were looked down upon. The Galileans were scruffy. And if you remember, uh, Jesus himself wasn't so well accepted because he was from Nazareth in Galilee. And then John also had a meager occupation He was a fisherman. Now, that wasn't necessarily a bad occupation, but he was by no means the upper crust. He wasn't politically connected. He he wasn't a tradesman, didn't have a job like that. But John was a guy mostly like most of us that are here tonight. I mean, just a guy who lived hand to mouth week after week and, and really just made a living the hard way. So John was the average Joe, or the average John, if you prefer. He was just the average John. Now, I want you to turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 1, verse number 16. And here is where we find the first meeting between uh, John and the Lord Jesus. And this is when Jesus called him out to be a disciple. John was in the midst of mending his nets in his boat. And we look in Mark chapter 1, verse 16. It says, Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, and of course, that's referring to Jesus... As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, And they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Now here we see the call of the first four disciples. Uh, These are actually two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And these were the four disciples that were the closest to Jesus, with Peter, James, and John being those that were in the inner circle. Now Andrew was also close to Jesus, but he was just a little bit further out from these other three. And... uh, as you look at the list, the different lists that are in the scriptures of the disciples that Jesus chose, you'll find out that they're always in the same order. The closest ones to Jesus come first, and then it goes on from there. So Peter, James, and John, they're the innermost 
disciples with Jesus. Uh, Andrew is fairly close, and then it starts to spiral out from there. So John's in the inner circle, and there's various places of Scripture that we could go to uh, to look at this, and we can see that very special relationship that he had with Jesus. But I suppose the, the one that really seals the deal on who actually was the closest to Jesus, which disciples, was when Jesus took only three of the disciples with him when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he only allowed three of his disciples to actually see him, uh, uh, a glimpse of him as he would be in his glory in the kingdom. And John just happened to be one of those three. And I suppose that that could have been a source of pride in him because later, uh, as you read the story of of John in, in, in in the Gospels, you find that there was a time when John and his brother James were with their mother and they came to Jesus and they asked Jesus if one of them or each of them could sit by the right hand or the left hand of Jesus when he actually revealed his kingdom. Now, that gives us one of the words that I want to use to describe John's character. It shows you the kind of man that he was, and it's the word thunder. The thunder of the apostle. Here was a man who was just brazen enough to ask this particular type of thing of Jesus. Now, this group of fishermen, they were a very bold and forward group. Peter was that way. Andrew was a little less so. But both, uh, definitely, James and John were very brash, outspoken type of men. Jesus gave Peter, James, and John, those three disciples, nicknames. Now, if you're in the book of Mark still, if you'll turn over a couple of pages to chapter 3 and verse number 16, we'll see this. Uh, It says, in Simon... He surnamed Peter, or he gave him a nickname. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed surnamed them, or gave them the nickname Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. Simon had that nickname of Peter, which means a rock, and we can debate why that Jesus called him that. I think perhaps there might have been a little bit of playfulness on Jesus' part when he nicknamed these disciples. Peter he called a rock, and Peter would, of course, later become a rock-solid disciple, and he would be a leader among the group and one who was very dependable, at least later on, in, in his defense of Christ, even after he denied Christ. He turned that around, and he became the rock of that group of disciples. But Jesus might have also called him a rock because he was a hard-headed guy too. I mean, sometimes it's hard to get through to him. But he also nicknamed James and John, and he called them sons of thunder. And commentators are divided about why that they were called that, but it's surmised that Jesus may have named them that because they were two disciples that were so brash. They were very quick to condemn. They were loud and they were outspoken. Now, if you'll turn over to the book of Luke, chapter 9, and verse number 51, here we find that Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem with the disciples, and he sent out an advance party of these disciples to go and find a place for them to stay and to gather some food. And so they went into a village of the Samaritans, but the Samaritans weren't too keen on entertaining a group of Jewish disciples, and so evidently they refused to help them. So let's look and see what happens in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? 
Now here are two disciples that are ready to take vengeance on the Samaritans. I don't really suppose that that was a good way to win friends and influence people because Jesus did not want his disciples to be known as these kinds of people that would kill others if they weren't treated well. So Jesus called these two sons of thunder. They had that brash temperament and these were two guys that you didn't cross them. They're ready to knock heads. They're going to get into a fight with you if if it's so required. And so that kind of character shows you why that John was not as polished as Paul. When he preached, you don't find the same kind of eloquence that Paul had. But Peter, but John was just a man who was, who was just so outspoken and and so direct about things. He took his cue more from Peter than he did uh, from Paul. And if you remember, Peter was often John's companion in preaching. After Jesus was crucified, Peter and John spent a lot of time uh, preaching in the temple. And they were both taken together and thrown into jail because they were preaching. And it was noted about them how bold they were to stand up and to preach the gospel of Christ. And also, the scripture says that they took notice of both Peter and John, that they were ignorant and unlearned men, And that they had been with Jesus. Now that's one thing you'll never find written about the Apostle Paul. Nobody ever said that Paul was ignorant and unlearned. Now the lack of polish in the background is a clue as to why John was so straightforward. He's always speaking with certainty. Now let me show you an example, just a little example of the difference between Paul's approach and John's. Uh, Paul was writing to the Corinthians and dealing with an issue concerning eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now, here's the way that that, that, uh, Paul would put this. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse number 27. He says, If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, Eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Now you notice when Paul is writing, he's always considering contingencies. And there's nothing wrong with that approach. John would never contradict Paul. But he would not deal with people in the same way that Paul did. John puts it out cut and dry. And so he says things like this when he writes in Second John, verse number 10. He says, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house and neither bid him Godspeed. And if you wanted to put that into the common vernacular of the day, it's like saying, Don't you tolerate even for a moment those who don't preach the truth. And so if they show up at your doorstep, you slam the door in their face. Now, he's not a guy that's going to invite J.W. and Mormons into the house. John's the guy that uh, sprays the water hose on them as they go down the driveway, that kind of thing. I mean, he slams the door in the face. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. I was, uh, I guess it was yesterday, I was standing at the kitchen window. I'd just gotten home or I was really busy doing something. And I noticed there were some, some Jehovah Witnesses that were out walking up and down the street and and they were going to ring the doorbell just as sure as the world. And I didn't have time to mess with Jehovah Witnesses. So I, I thought about this. I, I thought about rigging up something where you ring the doorbell and it shocks you or something. And you don't come back. But I know as sure as the world I did, I'd kill a Girl Scout or something like that. So I'm not going to do that. But uh, this is the way John was, though. I mean, you know, you show up at my door and you've got a false gospel to preach. I'm going to call down fire from heaven to burn you up. Elijah's his hero. And so that's the way that he was. He's a son of thunder. 
In 1 John, he doesn't deal with the maybes. Now, another example is one that you know very well. 1 John 2.19, and we'll use this scripture over and over as we go through this study. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they no doubt... They would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that they were not all of us. You know, there's a question that I get a lot. People will ask me, what if you have a person who says that they're saved and they make their profession of faith, but then they stop going to church and then they get into all kinds of trouble? Is that person really saved? Well, I would most often say something like this. I'd try to be a little bit diplomatic about it. I'd say, well, they don't show evidence of being saved, but I'm not going to pass judgment upon them because uh, they could be backslidden. Sometime later, uh, God may chastise them, and then he'll bring them back. And I would think that that would be a pretty good answer. What I'm doing, I'm leaving myself a little bit of an out. I'm not going to pass judgment upon their salvation. You know, sometimes it's very difficult for me because, uh, you know, I see family members and and uh, friends of people that are in church, and it's hard for me to say to somebody in church, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, they are not saved because they're acting like heathens. Well, John was just that direct. He would say, they don't hang around church and they don't fit in with us because they are heathens. He doesn't cut any slack. He says in 1 John 3, 7 and 8, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So there's no gray areas there. You sin, you're a sinner. I mean, it's like this. I mean, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's a duck. That's John's approach. You ask him, is this person a sinner or do sinners sin? Duh, that's what he said, sinners sin. So John's straightforward about it. Now here's another one, and, and this is one that, uh, that I would call really taking the teachings of Jesus ever so seriously. He says in 1 John 3 verse 15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. You remember Jesus teaching that in the Sermon on the Mount about anger and so forth and talking about murder? John says you hate your brother, you are a murderer. Now, oddly enough, the the thing that's interesting about that scripture is that John is in the midst of teaching about love. Now, you and I would say it quite differently, probably. Sweet, lovey-dovey preachers on TV, you know, uh, uh, the vintage church of what's happening now and and, uh, Osteen's Lakewood church of the the Barney. He'd be saying something like, I love you, you love me, we're a happy family. With a great big hug and a kiss from me to you, won't you say you love me too? That's how preachers today, you know, approach this whole thing. John says, hey, fella, if you don't love me, you are a murderer and you're going to hell. It's just that simple, pretty plain. So sometimes what you have to do when you're studying John and reading what he has to say, you have to back up a little bit and go to Paul just to get a little balance in your life uh, so you know how to treat people. But there's nothing wrong at all with John's preaching. I mean, all of this is truth. And when you read him, you'd better be able to handle the truth. He is a son of thunder. And folks, we need preachers like that, don't we? I mean, I like to use logic like Paul used logic, but I hope that nobody ever says, well, Pastor Smith, you know, he's okay, but he never preaches like John. I don't want to be that kind of preacher. I mean, I I want to hit you with the truth. And if it comes across like a two before upside your head, that's okay. So when you see me curl my hair and paint my fingernails, get another preacher. 
So, looking at John, I mean, he's, he's just a very interesting character. But I don't want you to think, you know, I've painted this picture of John. I mean, he's a fire-breathing John. It's my way or the highway. You do need to balance out John just a little bit. So I don't want you to think that John is always harsh, that he's always bristling, and he's that stern father who's going to whip you with the belt if you don't sit up straight. Because there is another side of John, another picture of him. So we also need to look at the tenderness of the apostle. I thought that I needed to tell you about that other part first because there are a lot of people who do not study Scripture and they get lost in some kind of a fairy tale depiction of John. If you look at the old artworks of the Renaissance, things like Leonardo da Vinci painted of supposedly John, you always see this pale-skinned John with this weepy, sad-eyed look. Can you give me a picture there, Corey? We have one of them here. This is, this is actually Leonardo da Vinci's uh, painting of John. And isn't he so sweet? I mean, he's just got that soft look. In the Oh, man, I don't know what he's thinking about right there. Maybe he's thinking about JWs and Girl Scouts. I don't know what he's thinking about. Then we have this next picture. This one uh, is uh, actually a picture. It's a Last Supper painting. It's not the one that Da Vinci painted. I'm not sure who did this one. The guy on the right, that's supposed to be John. The one on the left, I don't recognize. I don't know who he could be. But that one on the right is supposed to be John. Then the next picture we have, this is a more modern picture of him. But that's always what you get, this weepy, sad-eyed, I'm-so-sweet kind of look. I mean, does that look like a son of thunder to you? (laughs) Son of a thermos, maybe, but not son of thunder. But but John's not that type of character. But he was that son of thunder, but he'd also learned to temper that brashness and that boldness that he had and to become a very tender person. So I think that we need to see the real John. He is a son of thunder, but he has a tender side to him. And the tenderness of John is actually the side of him that's most often talked about. I mean, hardly anybody ever talks about that old John that he was and that brash guy that he was. But he did retain that thunderous character throughout his life. And it's evident in his writings. But he also learned to temper it. When you think about this rebuke that Jesus gave both him and James about sitting on the right hand or the left, Jesus rebuked them for that. And then when they said, well, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Jesus wasn't too pleased with that either. And, and he taught him some lessons about it. So we see a difference in John as you begin to look into his writings, how the character, even though he retains that character, he did learn how to balance it out in his own life in the way that he was taught. And so when he wrote the gospel account and when he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation, at that point in his life, he's probably somewhere about 90 years old or maybe even a little bit older. And in the gospel of John, when he wrote the gospel. And it wasn't like he wrote John, you know, just two years after everything happened or a a short time. This was way up when he was an old man. And when he's writing the gospel of John, never one time in the entire gospel of John does John ever mention his own name. Now, he may use other descriptive terms, uh, but he was never so brazen as he was in writing his gospel as he was when James and John approached Jesus. So he's not the man that says, look who I am. And he tries to stand out. I mean, here now he's a man who's an old man, and now he's, he's a, a man of humility. He didn't seek prominence. So he's not blasting his name out there and in front of everybody and saying, you know who I am? I am one of those three that went up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Nobody else got to go but us three, and I was one of those. No, by the time that John writes the gospel, 
account. He doesn't even mention his own name. And then in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you won't find his name mentioned there either. Now, you go to the book of Revelation, of course, you do find it there. And there may be good reasons for that. Uh, John didn't want there to be any mistake that he was the apostle that was over that entire region of the world. And remember, his letters were sent on this circuitous route to go to the seven churches of Asia, and they needed to see the authority of God's message. So here is John, though. He's the last living apostle. He's old, and he has this weight of apostleship that's all on his shoulders. And he presents the love of Christ and shows how extremely important that it is. So despite that thunderous character that John had, he's still known as the apostle of love. And one of the descriptions that he gives of himself is the disciple that Jesus loved. And I think he just wanted other people to know what it was like to be loved by Jesus. But I also think that we need to understand what John means by love. And we're going to see love as we go through the book of First John. And you ought not to be confused about this. I mean, the love of God certainly is unmatched. He sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins. But God's love is not this imagined type of maple syrup and gooey and sentimental so that God just loves people so much that he's going to overlook their sin. And like many people are talking, uh, speaking, preaching today, God's not going to send anybody to hell. God just loves you so much. God just loves you, loves you, loves you. And you just understand how much God loves you. Well, John is not that guy. I mean, he presents the love of God in the proper way. And so he's not the fellow that's going to be passing out the smiley face buttons and, you know, making people think that you're going to go to heaven no matter what because God's never going to punish anyone. Because when John passes out his smiley button, you learn very quickly that it has a pin on the other side. And if you're not careful, you push the pin in, you're going to prick yourself and you're going to bleed. I mean, all you need to do is just read through the book of Revelation just with a, with a short cursory glance and find out that John has a very much different picture of the love of Jesus Christ and who he is as opposed to what much is being preached today. So as you read First John, you will find the tenderness. You'll find that he uses the word love over 80 times. You'll see expressions like this in 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Twice in 1 John, he calls his readers, my little children. Then he uses that term, little children, seven more times. He used beloved five times in 1 John, three times in 3 John, and only 14 verses. So the tenderness of John does come through over and over again. But it was John's desire. I mean, we're going to learn about this next week and, and in the coming weeks. It's John's desire to stop a problem that's growing in the church. There, there's an urgency about what he writes because there was heresy. There was apostasy. And he has this very strong urge to keep this community of believers together. They're facing tough times. Now, these are probably the very same people that Paul wrote about and he and spoke to. He spoke to the Ephesian church and he told the Ephesians that, that there would be wolves that would enter in among the flock and they wouldn't spare the flock. And so here we see John, who is actually the bishop of that Ephesian church, and right at this time he's living among those wolves that Paul was talking about. And in 20 years or so from this time, uh, or from the time that Paul was talking, that... that 
these things started to take place. And, and it's the same Ephesians church that when John writes to them in John uh, chapter 2, he talks about how they left their first love. So John's living that. He's experiencing it. So there's an urgency about what he's writing to try to keep these people together. Then also, the tenderness of John was seen at the cross. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he was giving up his life, as he was hanging there, you remember that he committed the care of his mother to a certain disciple. And you remember who that was? It was the Apostle John. Now, John describes that, even though he doesn't give his own name, but we know almost certainly that he must be talking about the Apostle John. And the reason that Jesus did that, because he knew that John was a man of compassion. He had been molded, he had been taught, and those instructions had stuck with him. And so as fiery as Jesus could be in, in, in pronouncing woes upon unbelievers, John could do that too. But he could also reflect the character of Jesus in being very loving and compassionate towards people. And I'm sure that's why Jesus committed the care of Mary, his mother, to the apostle John. I think in some ways that we would be tempted to think that John would be beaten down. I said he was an old man as he's writing these things. And I've told you before that it's most likely that John had been boiled in oil. And that failing to kill him, the Romans were just superstitious enough to believe that that was some kind of an omen from the gods, that the gods were protecting him. And so instead of uh, boiling him again and trying to make sure they finished the job, they just banished him to that rocky island in the Mediterranean. But John wasn't a defeated man. And John was not a sentimental old fool that had lost all of the fight. He's still the son of thunder. And we'll see it in the directness of his approach and the lack of compromise that he has with the enemies of the gospel. But he was also concerned about believers. And he was very concerned lest they become discouraged by all the different things that they were facing. And he wanted them, didn't want them to think that God had deserted them. God still cared for them. God knew about everything that was going on in their lives. And so he does say in 1 John five thirteen, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, when he was writing the gospel account, it was the miracles that he was concerned about. He said, here's the reason that I've told you about all these miracles. I want you to recognize who Jesus was. So, uh, so he, he's talking about the initial faith in Christ at that time. But as we come to 1 John, now these people are believers in Christ. And now he's speaking about assurance. I want you to know how much that God cares for you and loves you. And so he gives them encouraging words and tells them that a person who really loves Christ is a person who also demonstrates his love to other people. They truly are the children of God. So that's a look at the apostle. As we go through this, we're going to pick up on that, those thunderous statements from time to time. And especially uh, when we get into those first three verses of the first chapter, we're going to see again that urgency that John has. And then we're going to talk about the, the uh, different doctrines that were being thrown about at that time that caused John to approach this subject matter in such a direct way. But then also again, we will see the tenderness of John. You'll see the word love over and over and over again because John was also that compassionate type of person. So John says the same things that Paul said. He just has a little bit different way of saying them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we 
do thank you for the time we've had to look into your word tonight. We're thankful, Lord, for these men who are uh, in the Bible, writers of Scripture and, and men who followed you unreservedly, who were willing to give up their very lives for your sake. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us, that we might be the same kind of people, that there would be a determination about us, that we would stand for the gospel, that we would not let error creep into our church, that we would confront apostasy, false doctrines, wherever we find it. But, Lord, also help us to do that in love and compassion for those who don't understand the gospel of Christ and need to have their hearts enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us as we do this study. Uh, give me the right words to say, and, and Lord, may we, may we faithfully present what John had to say in this little book of First John. We give you the praise for this in Jesus' name. Amen.